This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Eamon Dunphy. Now, it is six months since Russia invaded Ukraine. It wasn't expected to be a long and bloody war. It was, I think, expected that uh, Russia would prevail and do so very quickly. That hasn't happened. And uh, we have seen thousands of people die, millions uh, been displaced. We've seen the most appalling war crimes and scenes that people say have not been seen since the Second World War. And it continues to this day. So where are we in Europe? There have been, of course, uh, massive consequences for Europe. And we're joined now to discuss this by one of the most distinguished British journalists. John Kampfner is a broadcaster a journalist, a print journalist, and of course an author. His latest book, Why the Germans Do It Better, Notes from a Grown-Up Country, is a fascinating account of Germany. He was bureau chief in Moscow for the Daily Telegraph, chief political correspondent for the Financial Times, and as a broadcaster, he worked for the Today program and for Newsnight, and he's working currently on a book about the history of Berlin. John, thank you very much for joining us on the stand today. Uh, at the beginning of this, six months ago, it wasn't really expected, or was it, that this would be a long, drawn-out and bloody affair? It w- was it not expected that Putin would prevail, and maybe pretty quickly? Well, I mean, it's funny, because as you mentioned, I'm writing a history. I'm writing a history of Berlin. And one of the chapters uh, I'm writing about is the Thirty Years' War, which took place between 1618 and 1648. Um, That happened by fairly arbitrary means. The First World War, as we know, happened 
uh, through a bizarre set of circumstances. And yet what historians always tend to do is to overlook the accidental nature of things yes. and see great waves of inevitability. And at the risk of simplification, both are true. Um, things happen because of specific decisions taken on specific days at specific times. But at the same time, there are long-term trends. So nobody knew, to your question, nobody knew that on uh, that day, um, Putin would uh, invade uh, Ukraine. That said, the Americans were being very open, intriguingly open in their use of in their uh, uh, public use yes. of their own intelligence, talking about the more than 100,000 troops and heavy weaponry that was that was amassing and that had been amassing um, since uh, before Christmas um, around the border of Ukraine. Uh, and, you know, what might Putin have been doing that simply as a show of force? Unlikely. Was he going to invade on that particular day? Well, no, nobody, nobody could predict that. But that said, he was always going to do something. It's just we didn't know exactly what it was, how far he would try to go. Where we are now, fast forwarding to, as you say, six months uh, since that terrible moment and, and these awful uh, months that have followed, is in some ways pretty much where you might have guessed he would have got to originally. In other words, this idea of a full-scale invasion of Ukraine was both shocking but also surprising. Was he able to do that? Did he really want to do that? If he was going to de uh, depose Zelensky, was he going to get somebody in his place who would uh, be reliable? Could he keep Ukraine down and loyal? Uh, almost impossible. What Putin wanted to do was a show of strength, the annexation of the districts uh, Donetsk and Luhansk that he had already taken by force and illegally in 2014. And people forget the, the bloodshed that has been a daily occurrence in that region between 2014 and 2022. Um, and also to consolidate the annexation of Crimea. That's pretty much what he's got now, plus a bit more in the south. And what's intriguing is that is the waves that these these wars take. At one point, a couple of months ago, it was looking pretty bleak for Ukraine. Their military was exhausted. The weaponry that the West had given uh, at the outset was pretty much running out. But just in the last couple of weeks, there have been some intriguing, uh, almost guerrilla-style hits into Russian annexed uh, territory. So we're at a sort of, I wouldn't say it's a turning point, far from it. We're at a bit of a of a stalemate at the moment with both sides working out what to do. But I mean, you know, we just need to remember, without getting too tactical about this, how terrible um, the events have been and how we need to be absolutely foursquare in our support for Zelensky. Yes, of course. And in that sort of context, it's interesting that... There have been strikes in Crimea yeah. in, in uh, recent days, uh, heavy duty strikes, which one can only assume came from Ukrainians. Now, Crimea was, as you say, annexed in 2014. Yeah, including um, a bizarre video, which I'm sure uh, listeners uh, will have seen, and if not, I encourage them to look at, 
of the sort of plume of smoke yes. taken from a holiday maker, all these Russians uh, lying on the beach uh, in Crimea, which is sort of the jewel in, now the jewel in the Russian crown. And it's, uh, you know, it's clever tactics by Zelensky, because what he needs to do is to shake middle-class Russia out of its complacency. And I can tell you, Russian friends and acquaintances I know, uh, I mean, the friends are all anti-Putin, the acquaintances are are not, because they wouldn't be my friends if they were in any way ambiguous about this. But they are uh, reporting from Moscow, St. Petersburg, and elsewhere, that in spite of sanctions, life is going on pretty much as normal. And, you know, unless or until the Russian population can be seriously discombobulated, seriously disrupted, um, then I'm afraid nothing is going to stop Putin. Yes, and one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you today, John, is the effect uh, this conflict has had on Europe and what divisions it's exposed, and also in the context of sanctions, uh, who's suffering most, the Russians or Europe? I suppose that's an open question at this point. The other really interesting question for me is, would Europe be different? Would it have been different? Would Putin's calculations have been different if the UK had not left Europe? Uh, If Brexit had not taken place, would it not be better for Europe, for Britain, and for the West? that Britain was wholeheartedly a partner in a European Union facing into uh, Putin's aggression? Well, in, in reverse order, Eamon, on the, on the Britain and Brexit point, um, I mean, I, you know, I am completely out there in my fury about Brexit and everything that's happened to it, the damage it's done to Britain. Yes. Economically, psychologically, I could, I could you know, go on about this for hours on end, uh, and, and I have done. Um, on this point, however, I don't think um, it's made a huge amount of difference. I mean, the Brexiteers and, you know, Liz Truss are, you know, God forbid, soon to be <laughs> coming, incoming prime minister will argue that being outside the EU has allowed Britain to be more, quote, agile, unquote, not to wait until the last person. There was nothing in being in the European Union that would have stopped Britain no. from taking the positions it took. And it could be argued that it's now got far less influence uh, among uh, within Europe um, in trying to persuade others to, be, to take a tougher line as, as Britain has done. I think that's all a bit in the margins because Britain is still a key player in NATO, uh, and and in other forums, and I think both sides can slightly exaggerate the Brexit effect on Britain's role, and also people Brits love to exaggerate Britain's role generally. Full stop on everything, you know. Uh, you know, Brits love maps which show Britain in the centre of the world, and and I, you know, whether you're sitting in Washington or Berlin, not to mention Moscow or Beijing, it doesn't look like that. Um, no, and uh, I mean, you could argue that the one redeeming feature of Johnson was. Uh, he was proactive uh, in relative terms, in terms of uh, providing weapons uh, and support for Zelensky in the very early days. Uh, on the question of energy and the, the winter we're facing into, is Europe in trouble? 
Uh, I ask you particularly because of your knowledge of Germany, because of your book, Why the Germans Do It Better, Notes from a Grown-Up Country, because it does appear that Germany's energy policy, which, which depended on a gas a pipeline from Russia, uh, and for an upgrade depended even more on that, the decision to of Angela Merkel's not to build uh, nuclear power or not to rely on nuclear power after Fukushima. These um, appear to be matters of acute concern now and a real problem for uh, Europe in general. Yeah, I mean, this period of August, mid-late July into August, has been a bit of a lull. And yes. in a way, just as I was saying, sort of Russia, most Russians are continuing as before. So most Europeans are. Uh, you know, Germans have gone to, you know, their usual Spanish and Italian beaches. The French have gone to their own beaches. Everybody's kind of done their own thing. Um, knowing that it's a calm before the storm, uh, and obviously this heat wave that most of Europe has encountered is in one respect, just gives people more of a summer feel. On the other hand, in, in environmental terms, it demonstrates the not looming, but the, the, the already present dangers um, of, of climate change. But in terms of the politics of it, what has been going on behind the scenes, what the Germans have been doing and others is... Uh, to use the the term that's very popular in um, uh, policy circles nowadays, building up their own resilience. And there's been a huge amount of work being done on gas reserves, oil reserves, on looking both short-term and medium-term at new sources of energy, a debate in Germany about whether they should extend their three remaining nuclear plants that are due to shut down at the end of the year, by only three months or something, and then that's a kind of technical question about whether the nuclear rods will last that long and all that sort of thing. Questions around whether they keep the coal-powered um, stuff, and, uh, LNG liquid uh, uh, gas terminals. There's a lot of really technical work being uh, take, taking place, which is vitally important to uh, keep the lights on all the way through the autumn and, and the winter and into the spring, which will obviously have major economic repercussions, but also socio-political repercussions uh, across Europe. People are freaking out at the notion that uh, you know the far right and other extreme groups could benefit from social uh, protest and dislocation arising out of cost of living crisis, inflation compounded by oil and gas prices, uh, and everything else. And of course, Putin keeps on saying um, very publicly, you folk in Western Europe, you who have imposed the sanctions, you are going to suffer more than we yes. are. And he's uh, restricted uh, gas uh, flows into Nord Stream 1, the original pipeline into Germany and beyond that into Western Europe, down to 20%. Um, so he is doing whatever, whatever he can, as he's always done, to undermine social cohesion and democracy in Europe. And so this question of how it's going to play out, we're only going to know that, I would suggest, between October and, and February. Would it be fanciful to believe that the Russians have capacity for the kind of stoicism that might be required, more so than comfortable Western Europe, and also 
have we in Western Europe overestimated the effect of sanctions on uh, Putin and Russia? The answer is, is yes to both. Um, as I say, sanctions are, I mean, they were important to do that, to do what yes, has been done. Um, and they need to go further. They're never a panacea. It's one of those ones where you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. If you don't impose them, then what on earth are you doing to express your abhorrence? Uh, short of, you know, literally going to war or, or, or something like that. There's not much uh, countries can do. So they had to do what they did. Um, to what degree now Russia is finding all kinds of, whether it's spare parts or workarounds or whatever, um, they're finding uh, China to be yes, a... China a, is supportive of Russia, yeah. very much so, and that's very important. But there's some interesting questions around Western spare parts for military equipment, for um, Western planes, um, and that sort uh, and that sort of thing. And that some of the sanctions will take six months to a year to really take effect. There's another really important question, which uh, really would affect ordinary people, which is the idea recently proposed by the Finnish and Estonian leaders to impose a travel ban on Russians within the European Union, something yes. that doesn't exist now. What they have now is an aviation ban, so you cannot fly directly from the European Union or from Britain uh, into Russia. What everybody does, uh, or those that are doing it, Russians at least, and the old foreigner, is going via Turkey. Um, and you know, Turkish airlines are, are, are having uh, a field day. The other thing they're doing is they're going overland by train um, or by car into Estonia or Finland, and then they can fly where they like. So, you know, uh, one Russian I know who has uh, spends most of his time in a, in a swanky flat in Nice in, south, in the south of France just says, I'm just doing it, it just takes me longer. So the effects are limited. Um, and for as long as they're limited, they're not a problem for Putin. On your point about stoicism, Eamon, well, yes, I mean, yeah, I mean, Russians are used to far, far worse yes. privation than what they are going through now. I mean, somebody said to me, well, Louis Vuitton is shut in central Moscow, but Mew Mew isn't. So in other words, do you, you know, and you can't, go, you can't go to one particular sushi restaurant, but you can go to another. So, you know, it's, yeah, it's a bit rubbish, but, you know, you can, you know, compared to Stalin's time, compared to Brezhnev's era of stagnation, compared to most of, of Russian history, not just under communism, yes. they're actually living better. Yes. Um, and that's and that's the problem. And that's the issue that Putin likes to sell to his people that, you know, I, Putin, bring you stability. And also I am shoring up your borders. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. John, you are an executive director at Chatham House, the internationally renowned think tank uh, in London, and you're leading its UK in the world initiative, if I'm not mistaken. The... Well, this Tory leadership race we're seeing, which is effectively to decide who's going to be prime minister, the all the encouragement that Putin took, and indeed that she, President Xi in China, is taking, everything they see, when they see this pantomime in London between Sunak and Liz Truss, and she is, after all, the foreign secretary, uh, and I, I say this as somebody who is inherently pro-British rather than uh, the opposite. Are they surely not encouraged when they look at the state of Europe and indeed of, of Britain to be aggressive in the case of the Chinese, perhaps to make a move on Taiwan in the case of Putin to prolong this invasion and to do so with every hope of prevailing? The there was a visit, um, as you will recall, of Nancy Pelosi. Yes, the, indeed. The very, third and, I thought very provocative, but yeah. you tell me. Maybe not. Maybe they were right to play hardball. Well, I mean, yes or no. I mean, um, uh, you know, depends what you are seeking to achieve. The Americans managed to uh, infuriate, unsurprisingly, the Chinese, who then imposed what was effectively a military and economic blockade on Taiwan. Yes. Um, you know, buzzing planes all around, going into Chinese air, uh, Taiwanese airspace, um, and that sort of thing. Um, their message was, now you see what we are capable of doing if you wind us up too far. And yes. we can do this anytime, uh, you know, any day of the week. Um, and it was a very clear message to the Americans that if you want to push us, you know, we will, in a way, we don't even need to invade Taiwan. We will just slip simply surround it. 
Yes. And attritionally, it will, you know, eventually come over to us. So did the trip backfire? Yes or no. But, you know, then you come to a much wider question of how do you deal both separately and jointly with Xi and with Putin? And they are different. I mean, you know, the, the threat posed by China is strategic and long term. The threat posed by Russia is one of a very dangerous uh, adolescent yes. disruptor. Um, and, you know, they are, and, you know, China is a major economic player. It's a major soft power player across the global south with its Belt and Road Initiative uh, and other things. China is taken seriously, um, is respected, and deserves to be, albeit as an, as an adversary. You know, Russia isn't. You know, there is no Putin model. There's no Russian model that people in the world think, oh, wow, that's great. Can we have a slice of it? Uh, you know, he's just a sort of Slav version of, of General Pinochet on a bad day. And so they are different approaches. And what, you know, it's, it's a very, very dangerous moment. It's an incredibly important moment that the West in general, whether that's through the institutions, NATO, the EU, the G7, whatever, uh, can demonstrate to non-aligned countries into the global south um, that it is trying to be a force for good, um, and you know that that's that's the challenge. Now, how important again? Back to this question of how important is Britain? I mean, Britain is playing out its uh, absurd or eccentric politics at the moment, um, which is the sort of subject of no little ribaldry across Europe. I mean, every time you have... It really is English nationalism, isn't it? uh, Yeah, I mean, I see it as a sort of historical context of of, uh, a country struggling to understand what it's it's for. And, you know, what are its geographical parameters, which is your point about English nationalism and England versus Britain, and then obviously you're talking about Scotland and, and... Northern Ireland, what are its relations to Europe? But also, you know, what what kind of country is it? Is it a sort of Thatcherite, low-tax country uh, in which it's all about enterprise and, you know, the devil may care when it comes to poorer people? Um, and then you've got all the massive regional imbalances. I mean, there's just so many structural questions that Britain um, hasn't become, you know, come to terms with it and you've got this bizarre situation where the people who did according to the tory party's own rules the people who will determine the fate of this country or at least the choice of the next prime minister are a tiny tiny slew of septuagenarian uh (laughs) people wearing pearls um you know in the home counties whose um link to the lived experience of the rest of the country is tenuous, to say the least. 160,000 of them, I should yeah, remind well, our listeners who, yeah, who don't they, know. They're, but if they're still alive on, you know, on the day yeah. of, of voting. <laughs> and, you know, and, and so you just have that sort of sense of, and then, of course, people like Truss and Sunak have to play to the gallery because if they don't say all this sort of Thatcher, rah, rah, rah stuff, they know they're not going to get there. Will they rule like that uh, will they be in charge like that well well who knows but i mean you know whoever wins and it seems almost certain it will be trust you know isn't going to have 100 days they're going to struggle to have 100 hours to deal with the economic mayhem 
that uh, is generic to, to so many countries, but is particularly bad in the UK. Can I ask you a final question, John, about uh, the European Union in which we are heavily invested and the winter that we face? If you look at the situation in Ukraine, which to my inexperienced eye doesn't look like it will be resolved anytime soon, that we are in for a long, hard, unrelenting war there, uh, a grind, if you like, this winter may bring real hardship to people, not just in terms of what's called loosely the cost of living crisis, but that in itself being very serious, but also in accessing perhaps heating and the basics of life. In the European Union, what should we expect and how can we um, and I'm thinking of Germany as well, which I know is your specialist mm. uh, subject in a way. What should we uh, expect in terms of leadership, resilience, uh, a word you used earlier, and a sense of determination to get through this? It's, it's so hard to predict uh, Italy, a not Im unimportant yes. country, um, uh, was going through a um, a reasonable period. Now it's about to probably fall back on, you know, having dispensed with, well, shortly to dispense with Mario Draghi, who you know is is a, you know a sensible politician. It's about to go fall back into an extremist coalition. So that's a bad sign. Berlusconi back may be a member. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, what's happened in Italy is that Berlusconi is the least of their problems. Um, you know, the Liga and the Five yeah. Star are more dangerous now. Berlusconi is more of a sort of you know, comic, comic character, um, which isn't a reflection on Berlusconi. It's a reflection on on the way things have shifted. Um, France, Macron has been quite quiet uh, in recent weeks, but as I say, this is just the literally in, in the next week or two, everything will crank up. Um, the Germans who come back from their summers a little bit earlier uh, are already in place and have shored up their gas reserves pretty well. Um, but, you know, economic forecasters are very gloomy about Germany this autumn, Germany this autumn and this winter. So it is absolutely in individual countries and across the EU, it is going to be a roller coaster ride. But, you know, the, um, uh, the the one piece of comfort to be drawn is that everybody knows this and everybody has known this for some time. And one works from the assumption that both in terms of energy provision, but also in terms of trying to find national and European cohesion, that, you know, if if Europe gets through this October into February, March period yes. relatively unscathed, if Ukraine has not lost more territory and has perhaps um, gained a little bit, then I think uh, in by that period, by next spring, we'll all be breathing a sigh of relief. Okay, John, we're very grateful to you for joining us. That's uh, John Kaufner, and we're grateful to John. We're grateful to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon.
Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.